To begin, I invite you to close your eyes and remember. Remember a smell, a scent, a fragrance, an odor from your past, maybe your childhood home. And I'll bet that memory is very clear, and it includes pictures and sound. Smell evokes detailed memories. I, rem I remember the fish truck that came to our town on Thursdays. Walking home from school, I'd smell it before I saw it. Parked in front of the liquor store or across the street at the post office. Now, fresh fish don't smell fishy, but the nose knows. Mackerel is an oily fish, and when I smelled mackerel, and it was Dad's payday, I knew what we'd have for Thursday supper. And I can see the truck, and I can see and smell the seawater dripping from the back of it, and, and the sound of it hitting the pavement below. The first time I landed in India, in the middle of the night, in the damp, the smell of urban India wrapped itself around me. And I got used to it after a while. It's mostly composed of really unpleasant things, but with a fragrant, spicy edge. When I went back last year, I couldn't wait to smell it again. The Russian author Nabokov said, smells are surer than sights or sounds to make your heartstrings sing. The story in today's gospel begins a few days before that party at, Mar at Lazarus and Martha and Mary's house in Bethany. Jesus is slowly, steadily moving down south and up into the hills toward Jerusalem. He's still on the far side of the Jordan River, still safe, or safer than he would be on the near side. And Jesus gets news from his friends in Bethany. His best buddy, Lazarus, is deathly sick. Jesus waits and waits before getting up and going on his way. Bethany is just a little more than 10 kilometers from Jerusalem. The people around Jesus know it's a risk even to go close to the city and the power brokers there. Thomas, though, seems to get it. Well, he says to the other 11 disciples, we may as well go there and die with him. On the way, word comes that Lazarus has died. No need for Jesus to come now. But Jesus keeps going toward Bethany in Jerusalem, and he says that Lazarus's fate will actually reveal God's glory. After he meets and challenges Lazarus' sisters, Jesus weeps. His own grief flows out of him. And when he calls for someone to open the tomb, Martha says, he's been in there three days, there'll be a stink. Doesn't stop Jesus. He can already smell death all around him. Lazarus comes back to life. Everyone is amazed. More people want to follow Jesus. 
and the news of Jesus' act of power gets to Jerusalem. So now we're in the house where Martha and Mary live and Lazarus lives again. But there is a shadow over this party. It's been closing in and getting darker every day for a while now. Surely everyone feels it. Thomas does. Martha and Mary, especially Mary, know they may have their brother back for a time, but in a short time, they will possibly, probably lose Jesus. So what do you do in the shadow when hope seems to be melting away? Well, Martha decides to throw a party. Jesus loves parties, and there's good reason to celebrate. Lazarus is alive again. And in John's Gospel, a good party and a great meal are foretastes of heaven. I think Martha gets it. Mary decides to show her love and pour out her grief, and she goes to get an amphora sealed up with spikenard in it. Maybe she bought it for Lazarus's embalming and, and didn't need it, so she put it aside. So here she goes to get it for Jesus. She lets down her hair, which is an act of intimacy. She pours the expensive, powerful balm on Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Now, if her intent to honor is to honor Jesus, she should put some of that fragrant oil on his head. Only the dead get their feet anointed. Mary gets it. Thomas, Martha, Mary, they get it, and they're starting to understand what's ahead for Jesus, but Judas doesn't get it. He breaks the silence of awe. He says, this should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now what Jesus says back to Judas is troublesome. You'll always have the poor with you. So often repeated since Jesus spoke those words. Repeated to justify charity, but to refuse to work for change. If Jesus said it, well, God must will it that the poor will be always with us and there's really nothing we can do. We'll help if we can. And maybe that common attitude explains the usual translation of those words. In John's Greek, it's better translated not as an indicative, but an imperative. Keep the poor always with you. Stay close to the poor as Jesus always did. But for now, in this place at this time, Jesus says, what Mary has done is right. In fact, it's sacramental. John doesn't tell us about a Last Supper like the other Gospels do. He starts early in chapter 6 when Jesus feeds a big crowd. And then he preaches a long sermon about the bread of life, which he will offer for the sake of the world. And then in chapter 13, John just starts after supper, after they had eaten. No story of what went on at the table. Instead, after supper, Jesus washes his disciples' feet and says, do this, do for others 
what I have done for you. And so in the middle, in chapter 12, Mary acts out Jesus' sacrifice, the high price, the scandal of limitless, unconditional love. And everyone reclining around the table or waiting on that table or working in the kitchen gets what Mary has done and what Jesus says is coming. John says the smell of the perfume filled the whole house. Now, Matthew and Mark tell much the same story. It's set in Bethany, but it's at someone else's house. The woman who comes to Jesus is not given a name, but she brings the expensive perfume and anoints or embalms Jesus. And Jesus says in those stories, as he does in this story from John, leave her alone. But in Matthew and Mark, he says, he says, wherever the gospel is preached, anywhere in the whole world, this story will be told, and everyone will know what she has done. The smell of the perfume fills the whole house, and the story and the memory and the love have power to spread around the whole world. In our reading from Philippians, we hear Paul make a very extravagant claim. Before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he says he was the best of all Jewish scholars, one of the greatest judges of righteousness, and his desire to stamp out this risen Jesus nonsense was legendary. But, he says, he left all that behind him, literally, as a dung heap, so he could know Jesus and follow Jesus through life and through death and into resurrection. But Paul <clears throat> still rises to prominence and authority in the church. His past equips him to preach and teach and argue and reason and claim his rights as a citizen. He uses his knowledge and skill to draft the very first Christian theology. <clears throat> but he still looks back to see his then. And then he turns around to look ahead to see his now. And that vision, that meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus, transformed Paul, who before that had used his Hebrew name, Saul. Crisis demands a response, transformation. A big change calls for full commitment to a new way of living. And limitless, unconditional love often provokes extravagant gestures. <clears throat> Excuse me. In 1919, after the war to end all wars, W. H. Auden wrote a poem called The Second Coming, and it includes this stanza. Things fall apart. <clears throat> Things fall apart the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-rimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. So was Auden a prophet? Did he look ahead a century to our time, to our reality? 
Because from day to day, doesn't it seem that things are falling apart? We, we wonder where the center of it all is. And maybe not anarchy, but a new fascism is loosed upon the world. The best may have great conviction, but it seems the worst are still full of passionate intensity. God calls the church to respond to the crises of our time. Respond creatively. Respond with hearts, hands, and voices for the sake of the world God made and the people all over it, all of whom God loves. The world's crises are the church's crises because Jesus gave his life for the sake of the world. Salvation is both temporal and eternal. Jesus said and did more about the real life conditions of people than about their fate after death. We can think of so many crises in our society and in our world. We could, we could come up with a list of things that make us wonder if things really are falling apart. But let's narrow the focus to something something smaller than the future of the planet. How about the future of the church and this congregation? We are not in deep, deep crisis. We are not deathly sick as so many congregations are, but we know we have to grow. The alternative is gradual death and the first thing to die will be mission. So two questions. <clears throat> what do we have that is really in our power to share for the sake of others. Start with family and friends, those who don't have faith, those who don't come to church. And what can we do that is within our ability to do? Maybe something we haven't done before that will make a real difference in this world. And don't think at all about the cost. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and those who are perishing, we are the aroma of Christ. How smelly are we? Do we give off a good scent, one that makes people want to know more and Want to know why we smell so good? I think the Presbyterian motto is not that Latin thing around the burning bush. Neck, tamen, consumi, batter. The real motto is moderation in all things. The, the appropriate Presbyterian benediction, I think, would be, be careful out there. Well, Mary of Bethany and Paul the Apostle would beg to disagree. Jesus weeps over Christians who don't smell. 